Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Work in Progress, the personal productivity science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode. I'm Dina Sargent and I'm your host for the show today. Uh, now, you often hear the term problem solving in conversations, resumes and career expectations. Now, most of us easily add it into our resumes as our list of skill sets that can set us apart from everyone else. However, sometimes without even knowing what it could possibly mean, um, I hate to admit that I am one of those people. Today, we're going to aim to define what it is and how it allows us to be productive in our work performance, school life, and everyday situations. Now, I'm not going to be talking about this alone. I have got Robert McLean joining me today. You know, he has worked with companies and exposed to the skill of problem solving. Uh, one company in particular was McKinsey Management Consulting Firm. Now, how are you going today, Robert? Very well, thank you, Dina. Um, I'm very happy to come and talk to you today and understand what problem solving is. Um, like I said, I hate to admit it, but I am that one person that does not know what it means and does not know how it can possibly apply to everyday life that we're going through. Well, we, um, we, we strike problem solving in so many areas of our lives. Uh, for example, uh, in our family, one of the questions we've been dealing with is, should we put solar panels on the roof? Mm -hmm. There's a cost. Uh, there's some revenue that comes through, there's an impact on your carbon footprint mm -hmm. and all those things have got to be taken into account and particularly should I do it now or should I do it later? Mm -hmm. um, and we would argue and, and we, sh we show in Bulletproof Problem Solving that this is the kind of problem uh, that can be successfully addressed uh, with our problem solving um, approach. Then when you're working in a company, uh, there's a whole lot of issues about new products and innovation uh, you might be losing market share. What are the root causes that explain that? And once again, that lends itself to problem solving. Mm -hmm. And we talk in the book about how some global problems or, or, or societal problems like um, the spread of HIV in India mm -hmm. um, or the spread of obesity globally uh, can all, you can gain insight and in how uh, problems like that can be tackled mm -hmm. uh, with a systematic process. Mm -hmm. Now, I've had a chance to get to talk to you a little bit before we started recording and get to know you a little bit more. Um, before we get into the topic, we love to start off with a little get to know you and get to understand um, a little bit more into your everyday life and sort of what your interests are. So when I say these different topics, just say the first thing that sort of comes to your mind. Uh, the first one is a favorite book of yours. It's a book few readers would have heard of. It's a book um, entitled Olive Cotton, who was one of Australia's finest photographers. Mm -hmm. uh, her career started in the, the 20s and, and 30s and then she had a, a period where 
uh, she didn't uh, photograph for almost 50 years um, and then rose, came into prominence again towards the end of, of her life. Mm -hmm. Why do I like a, a book like that? Well, I love her work. She's done some extraordinarily artistic photography um, and it's, it's given me an understanding of, of the person behind it and the life that she led. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's it's amazing that a little a photographer can sort of inspire a whole lot of different ways of understanding the world and different ways of looking into its scope into what they see. Indeed. The next one is a favourite movie of yours. Oh, I'm a, I'm a soapy. I, I would say Dr. Zivago. Okay. Okay. I, I can understand that. I've seen it. Um, Being on the train and looking at the snow outside and a beautiful love affair. Yeah. Oh, that is that is a really nice way. It's a really idealistic life way of living as well. <laughs> um, the next one is a favourite podcast. Um, I, I love economic podcasts. So <laughs> Econ Talk um, mm -hmm. is is one that I listen to regularly, and uh, that mainly has economists being interviewed. And another is. Uh, Tyler Cowan's uh, program and he's another professor of economics mm -hmm. and whenever I'm out uh, walking I have a, a podcast on and if it isn't one of those two it's The Economist. Okay I've seen The Economist. I really like listening to him. I really like listening to the whole idea of it as well so it's probably the only way you can get me interested in economy <laughs> and understanding it a little bit more. Um, so this sort of ties in really well to the next phase, which is the famous role model that you have. Is there a role model that I had? Yes. Um, yes, uh, an Australian by the name of Sir Roderick Carnegie. Okay. Uh, was a, um, he was the leader of Consig Rio Tinto and prior to that he had headed McKinsey. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got to know uh, Rod and uh, I, I, I loved his intelligence. I loved his concern for Australia and its, its growth and uh, the capability that we had as a as a people mm -hmm. um, in the modern world. Uh, now, there's many other people that affect your life, but at a very young at a very young age, um, I, I looked up to Rod and, and admired his accomplishments enormously. So, how has he inspired what you're doing today in sort of helping? the world understand the situations? Well, um, at McKinsey, Rod was known as being an absolutely fearless um, problem solver. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there were stories about how the modern corporation is organised around business units. Okay. And uh, Rod was leading that work with a, a client in the, in the US. And uh, at first there was resistance to what he was proposing. Mm -hmm. But in the, in the end, they agreed to it reorganised the company and the world followed um, with the this organising around um, around business units. So Rod um, was was a great problem solver, is a great problem solver mm -hmm. and, of course, um, a role model for people like myself. And this really goes into the whole idea of what we're here to talk about today and talk about problem solving. Um and talk about productivity as well, like the whole show is based around productivity. So before we get started, we'd love to know, how would you personally define what productivity is? Uh, my definition of productivity would be the pretty standard one of, um, of economists, that it's uh, the output divided by the hours uh, mm -hmm. that are worked. 
Um, what we know, though, is that uh, output isn't standardised, isn't the same, mm-hmm. um, and in a lot of areas, um, what I've come over time to, to to learn to do is to try to work smart, mm-hmm. um, and that means focus on the, the right problem or the real problem um, and devote um, the most productive hours to it, and that way you, your, your productivity is going to be um, going to be high. So what do you think people get wrong when it comes to understanding productivity and how you see productivity? Well, the nature of work today is that um, most people work in teams mm-hmm. and uh, productivity is determined not um, not so much by the, the productivity of in an individual person but the productivity of the team itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means that uh, they need to have uh, work plans, they need to have objectives, they need to have time frames, um, and they need to be able to sort out differences um, mm-hmm. in, in, in points of view. And once you go down that path, it's not just a simple matter of, um, you know, there, there are some areas. I was with a, a, a software company this morning that I'm involved in and, uh, you know, they were having a coding camp. Mm-hmm. And you can all, um, I think listeners can appreciate, well, if you've got a coding camp, you could come up with a measure of productivity, which is like how many lines of code got written, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a day a day or an hour. Um, but so much of, of what we do in, in modern work um, involves trade-offs, involves teams, differences in points of view. Mm-hmm. And... It's 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 it more is in more in the nature of problem solving, you know, than just a simple metric of output per hour or lines of uh, lines of code. Um, so not an easy uh, measure, uh, you know, to uh, to come up with. No, I think especially when it comes to, I know that everyone has a different definition as to what productivity is to them, and hearing it, you always see it's being productive, it's making use of your time, it's understanding that. There's always a something to do. There's always something that you could be doing. Like, the, for example, the phrase that I always get at home that you could be more productive. You can do something more productive with your day and understand. And sometimes it's being the lack of productivity that goes along is sort of what stops everyone everyone's in everyone in like either co-workers or family situations from the cogs to stop working I always see it as sort of the cog situation where you have one cog that stops working then all the other cogs sort of stop working so a machine can't function properly right and it's really interesting because the whole idea of it being seeing as a machine is sort of how everyone in everyone involved in the situation or in the problem is just getting solved if not if one person isn't able to work or one person isn't working properly or to their best capability of getting the task done then it's not seen as being productive it's not seen as the whole machine running effectively right yeah yeah i i think that when it comes to the definition i gave of productivity before of output divided by hours um, I think we spend a lot of time on the denominator, yep. the hours, not much time on the numerator. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where problem solving comes into, into play um, because um, you, can, you can get output, but if you worked on the wrong problem um, or you didn't uh, uh, prioritise well, 
you're not going to get the outcome that uh, you potentially could get. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think we've got on the uh, denominator, I think, as you say, there's there's a lot of tricks of the trade, you know, using productive hour, your productive hours well. Um, I'm a person who, I'm a morning person. Mm-hmm. I do my best work, um, you know, from 26 o'clock and, and noon or 1 o'clock. Okay. My wife, on the other hand, is, a, is an afternoon person. She writes mm-hmm. between 1 and 6 o'clock and that's the time when she's at her most productive. So I, I think we've learned how to do those things, but what we haven't learned enough about is um, how, you, how you can change the world and change the workplace you've got um, by th- thinking more about uh, uh, problem solving and, and output. And if, if, Can I give an example? Yes, go for it. Um, there's an example we talk about in our new book, The Imperfectionist, um, Elon Musk, who is you know famous for some quite outrageous uh, things or demanding things, mm-hmm. um, he's he's been re- relentlessly trying to lower the cost of getting into space with his SpaceX um, venture. Yeah. And one of the things he was concerned about was that the avionics, the computer on board SpaceX, um, cost about ten million dollars. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to dramatically lower the cost of um, avionics. He interviewed um, a NASA engineer by the name of Kevin Watson mm-hmm. and, and he said, um, I've got a task for you. I want you to build me a $10,000 computer for SpaceX. Mm-hmm. And um, Kevin Watson gulped and uh, took it all in and said, so you're, you're asking me to reduce the cost of the avionics by 99%. And Musk said, yes, in a year. Okay. And he did. Um but that, that, to my mind, is an example of, of, of uh, what we see in problem solving where you've, you've got to focus on the numerator as well, what can be and how the world can be different and, and a better place uh, when you solve a problem. Yeah, so for example, the numerator that you're talking about, what could that be so to counter the denominator? So what could the, um, the numerator that you're talking about in terms of an example, what could the numerator do to sort of elevate or help the? Well, I think it, in this, in that, in that case, it was really um, asking an, a, an out, audacious or an outrageous question mm-hmm. about the cost reduction potential. Okay. So, so the end result was that Musk got um, a computer for ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So that we would call that a, a problem-solving result. Yeah, um, and it was done in a, a a period of time that nobody ever thought was um, that it was possible. Oh, that's it's amazing that they were able to ever complete that and ever go through that task. Let me let me let me give another example, perhaps to illustrate this. A couple of my uh, colleagues were at McKinsey were working with the Federal Reserve of San Francisco mm-hmm. on whether they could improve productivity in in counting money, okay, uh, notes and uh, notes and coin. And, you know, they, they were trying to think of different ways to go about it. And then one of my colleagues, Don Waters, said, why don't we weigh the money? Why don't we weigh the money instead okay. of counting it? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, how would we know if it was any better or not? So they said, well, we can just run some experiments. We can see um, what, error th- what errors there are mm-hmm. when we weigh money and we can see what errors there are when we count it. And what they found, and they had the uh, the leadership of the Federal Reserve watching while they did this experiment, did this count, and they showed that there were actually far more errors 
um, in physically counting the money than just weighing it and coming up with an estimate of how much money was there. Wow. So that, again, is a problem-solving output, mm-hmm. um, you know, where uh, it was compared to an alternative. Mm-hmm. There were significantly less errors in this, you know, quite radical approach. But you can see where big ideas come into play and, and that's what I meant before when I said think one of the first things is to think a bit more about the numerator mm-hmm. um, as well as the denominator. It's not to say the denominator is not important, but we're, we're all wor- running around with lists and to-dos and, and priorities mm-hmm. and um, often not thinking about what could be. No, that's a really good way because it ties in very nicely to problem solving and discussing it a little bit more. Um how would you personally define what it is? And this is a question that I'm personally interested in knowing because I have no clue as to what problem solving actually is a set definition for. So how would you personally define what it is? Well, um, you only have a problem um, when you have alternatives and consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might also say some uncertainty um, about them. Um, if if there was nothing to be uh, traded off or resolved um, around questions I gave before, like HIV in, in India or the solar panels on my roof, mm-hmm. um, there would be an le- element of certainty and confidence that meant you didn't, know, didn't need to spend time looking at the alternatives. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm not much of a person for sort of games and puzzles um, and they're reasonably, you know, deterministic. So I, I don't think of those as fitting into this category of having real choices with consequences mm-hmm. um, with the kind of problems that I'm talking about in, in business and society. Okay. So what kind of problems would you usually sort of focus on, if not the games and puzzles, what kind of areas would you like to strengthen your skill set? Well, in um, Bulletproof Problem Solving and the Imperfectionist, we take quite a wide range of of problems that we've seen successfully addressed. And, um, you know, I I touched on um, one a little while back of uh, that obesity is something that we talked about and it's a difficult subject to talk about mm-hmm. and but nevertheless we thought well how how might we with our problem solving capability think about this and so we started off with very simple simple approaches of calories in and and calories out and did that really explain things across countries and were there countries where um, you know they seem to have policies that meant that they had less obesity than than others mm-hmm. and then we started to say well you know, there's big differences between city, countries like the US and Japan um, in terms of obesity. But when you come to the US itself, there's some enormous differences within cities in the United States. Mm-hmm. And But what we started to observe there was that the cities that had um, very, very high levels of obesity were ones that had low socioeconomic um, status. Oh, and okay. so we we started to go down a track where we thought, well, maybe these things ought to be taken into account more in policy. So it's not just a health policy, mm-hmm. but it may relate to broader things in society. 
And we took that a little further with some work that was done in Australia recently on child obesity. And uh, the, the team did it and drew an extraordinary conclusion that uh, in the, when they looked at socioeconomic status and came up with the conclusion um, that uh, until, the, the, uh, until the age of eight, um, whether or not a child obese was primarily linked to uh, the parent's uh, body mass index, mm-hmm. and in particular that of the mother, whether the mother had had year 12 education. Okay. So this is not the end of the story, but problem solving takes you down paths and that work has been written up and, and it some, to some extent reframes a health issue as an education issue. Mm-hmm. and a socioeconomic status issue. So we use this expression that complex problems don't give up their secrets easily um, and that's why you've, you've got to uh, have a systematic process that allows you to bring different lenses to a problem, experiment, uh, draw on all kinds of capability, not just the people on your own team and uh, the, that are in your own team room uh, to have these um answers that are going to stand scrutiny mm-hmm. um, and that are going to you know have a big impact on the world and so how does the whole idea a whole philosophy regarding problem solving how does that influence an individual's personal productivity the most likely thing that you're going to uh, going to feel once you've gone through a systematic process of defining the problem uh, breaking it down to component parts setting some priorities in what you've got to do first and, and, and then second, putting a work plan together that assigns uh, responsibilities to team members, doing the analysis, uh, which may be, be simple heuristics or it might be co- you know, complex models or scenarios, mm-hmm. and then doing the synthesis where as a team you pull together the findings and then finally where you put your recommendations for, for action uh, to whoever the decision maker is. And we would argue that um, that going through that process means it's most likely that you will have defined the problem well and so there's less risk that you were working on the wrong problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you've, if you've carefully brought different lenses to a problem or broken it down in ways that give you a lot of insight about the problem, um, you know, then it... Then, then again, you've reduced the risk that you won't, you didn't just implement what the boss said he thought, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was the, was the problem, or what the team did, you know, this this last week or last year, um, but that you've you've worked together with your colleagues, um, and and you've probed it, you've tested it, um, and you've come away with conviction mm-hmm. um, that your conclusions and your recommendations um, make sense given the way you've defined the problem and the resources you've put to it. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much about really debating your reason. It's more understanding what is going, what the situation is and how, how it needs to be solved. Well, we, we see problem solving as um, a team sport. Okay. Um, And it's one where, so much of problem solving before COVID and we're learning to do it post COVID uh, that you did in team rooms with diverse teams, with mm-hmm. teams that brought different skills and perspectives to, uh, together. Yep. Uh, so you may have somebody with a business background, you may have someone with a stats or an IT um, you know, background, um, 
you know, depending on what the uh, the issue is. Um, but you've you've actually got to go through that process of arguing the toss about, um, you know, why you think the problem is X or why you think the problem is Y mm-hmm. and convincing your teammates um, that this you have defined the issues correctly um, and that you've got a plan uh, that makes sense to solve the problem mm-hmm. and then, of course, be able to defend your conclusions um, because ultimately you're going to have to present them to higher-level management um, or a board um, to get sign-off on the action you're proposing. Mm-hmm. Um, and at each, every step of the way there, you know, my view is just one view and I've got to be convinced, I've got to be able to convince you and the rest of the team and, and you've got to do the same. Um, you know, where you reach a, a view that, yes, this is the team's view. Mm-hmm. And how, in sort of a way when it comes to a group setting, I know that everyone has a different way of explaining their side and sort of determining what side is the correct side. There are some personalities there that are very, very easily to, very easily to buckle down and yep. to just choose a side. Yeah. How do you have the strength to sort of keep arguing your side and keep seeing the different ways that you can sort of state your case and be right in it? Yeah, it's a really good question and there's a lot of tricks of the trade, you know, that we've used and that we've seen used. So, for example, um, one thing we'll do, we'll do is um, go around the room and, get every, and ask for everybody's views. Mm-hmm. But we'll start with the most junior people. Okay. Um, so their their views get heard and don't get um, drowned out by more senior people. Mm-hmm. Um, another uh, device we use is when we have defined the issues and put together a logic tree and put that up on a whiteboard. Um, we'll allocate everybody uh, some sticky notes, mm-hmm. and they get a hundred points, and they get to vote for the issues that they think are the most important issues that we should be working on. And um, and so we tally up the votes, mm-hmm. uh, reflecting what the groups uh, feel. So that's they're both ways of reducing the impact of seniority, or just the whole sense of, you know, the boss thinks this this is the problem, and and therefore that's what we're going to have to work on. Mm-hmm. And so, what are some of the skill sets that make an an individual a good problem solver? We argue that good problem solvers. Um, are made, not born. So we mm-hmm. we don't feel that the, um, this is just the domain um, of philosophers, um, you know, or of people who have learnt logic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, 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 they're fairly simple propositions. But, you know, yes, of course, you do have to use either inductive or deductive reasoning and it helps to know a little bit about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my experience at McKinsey was that we brought in such a diversity of people from uh, people who had, you know, English literature, literature backgrounds to uh, economics, music, um, oh. uh, philosophy, mm-hmm. um, PhDs in nuclear physics, um, and they all had to work in teams and learn to work with each other. You know, so you come away um, just saying a structured process can um, allow teams to build their capability Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter greatly, um, you know, wh- whether they come from a particular discipline or not. And why is it so, I know in a lot of settings, it's it's very difficult to get along with 
some people that you work with and some group members. Why do you think it's a difficult thing to sort of get along with people that you work with? I, I think we're I think we're all um, we're we're all different, of course. But um, the experiences that that I've had have mostly been um, that we're on the same page as a team. You mm-hmm. know that we have a, a, a common goal. Um, you know, which is to um, we're contracted by a, uh, or we've got an agreement by a client that we're going to. Um, you know, achieve some results for them in a certain period of time, mm-hmm. and we're highly motivated um, to serve that client um, superbly well. Um, so you have some great unifying things, um, but we also ha- had a culture in McKinsey, and I and I believe that's true to this day. Um, that says, um, you know, we we want to focus on what's right rather than who's right. Um, we want to have you know, strong conviction from the facts Mm -hmm. and the analysis that we look at. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, those things are going to be um, debated and um, and argued. Um, Today, um, we we think it's getting harder and harder just for facts to carry the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're learning a lot more about how you argue in terms of frames and values um, in order to get somebody to take an action that um, that, is, that is needed. But um, I, I, I think there's plenty there's plenty of evidence to show that um, people people do work well in teams um, and and really overcome you know their personal differences with the objectives they have together. And what are some of the personal sort of personality traits that need to take place? in order for someone to really excel at problem solving? Well, I was asked this question um, when uh, when we launched the book uh, a few years ago and the person asking the question said, Rob, it struck me that you and uh, so many of the people that I work with were, were intensely curious. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we think curiosity... Um, is uh, is is quite important because that means you're open to new ideas, um, and you're not just going to, you know, run with something that has been done uh, before. Um, I think having a a tolerance for ambiguity, um, okay, and, and recognizing that um, very few things of uh, these days are certain, um, and you've got to accept the fact that you've got to find a way forward. Um, you know, even though it's not 100% clear and that you can make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, the word that gets used a lot these days is empathy, um, okay. putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And um, there's no question that, that people who uh, became su- successful at McKinsey um, had, empathy, had empathy and uh, built great client uh, relationships. Mm-hmm. Um but there's also something about wanting to see change and wanting to wanting to see things get done. It, um, we don't think good problem solvers are just happy with an elegant answer. Mm-hmm. They want to see action. Yeah. Um, they want to see the recommendations that have been put together um, uh, come into play and uh, and and have impact in the world the way they'd like them to. Mm-hmm. And 
it's really interesting because we talk about logic and we talk about logic being attached to problem solving. How much of problem solving is logical? Well, wouldn't it sound funny if you flipped it around and said how much of problem solving is Ill illogical? Okay, we can. Well, let's try that question then. And I, and I, and I don't know how to um, how to work in that in that world. Mm -hmm. um, but if I if I just give you an illustration, one of the things that um, during COVID that that I did because I love doing logic trees and thinking about problems, and I I gave myself the problem after the 2019-20 bushfires in New South Wales, mm -hmm. um, a little challenge to say what what was going on. What 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 happened? Why did we have such extraordinary loss of um, of property, um, lives, um, uh, you know, over a billion animals mm -hmm. um, in that um, in that in, during those uh, those fires? And so I started doing what what I tend to do is to say, how would I break this problem down? Well, I'd think about the incidence of the fires, mm -hmm. and I would talk about the severity of the fires. And if I looked at the, the severity, um, I would try and understand where, where the fires occurred, how they were started uh, and how they spread. And when I started asking myself those questions, it took me d uh, down the, to understand that there were a class of fires called mega fires. Mm -hmm. And there were about half a dozen, a dozen of them uh, that each burnt out over 250,000 hectares. Now, those mega fires were 1% of the fires in 2019-20, but they accounted for over 50% of the damage that okay. occurred. So I, I think you can see what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm, I'm following a logic tree mm -hmm. and I'm trying to, trying to say, well, how did these, how did these fires, uh, where did these fires occur? Well, they occurred in national, deep in national parks. Mm -hmm. How did they get started? They got started by lightning strikes. How did they spread? Very rapidly because there were no, there was no ability for access, um, you know, by fire brigades and so forth. And we had very few of those water bombers available at that time. Mm -hmm. So this is really almost the only way I know um, to break apart a complex problem, mm -hmm. which is to keep asking these why questions. Um, okay. and what happened here and where did it happen mm -hmm. and then pursue the logic um, that allows, as I said earlier, even the most complex problems to give up their secrets. Mm -hmm. And how, in a sense of talking about the logic that sort of takes place in that, how does, is there a place that emotion fits in there as well or is it purely logical? Um, you immediately made me think about um, a story I mentioned a little earlier about the spread of HIV in India mm -hmm. and um, a, col a former colleague of mine, Ashok Alexander, joined the Gates Foundation and worked on this issue of the spread of HIV. And when Ashok first got involved, uh, the foundation was following an epidemiological um, pro uh, approach mm -hmm. uh, to how the um, HIV was being spread and they were focused on long-distance truck stops and what they called men on the move in uniform uh, who were responsible for transmitting the virus. Okay. Ashok took a totally different approach. Mm -hmm. He went to hundreds of villages and met 
sex workers who were mainly women mm-hmm. and tried to understand what was going on and what he learned uh, with just extraordinary emotion um, and sadness and a whole lot of other and joy uh, with it um, was that uh, these women um, were, were facing domestic violence mm-hmm. um, and that uh, one of the things that had that had to stop um, was the um, was the domestic violence, and he came up, he and and the communities, he came up with a model um, that alerted this uh, the community to where these situations were, where women were being threatened um, with violence, and you can't you read Ashok's book, um, you know, which is a very very moving book, but here's um, you know, a, a hardcore McKinsey problem solver working with the Gapes Foundation um, with an extraordinary amount of emotion um, of what was happening in the lives of these women. And the the, the good part of the story is that um, 18 months, in about 18 months, uh, the what was called the Averhand Solution was rolled out um, to a huge number of communities in India Mm-hmm. And it's believed to have stopped the spread of HIV. Wow. It's amazing just how much problem solving of the skill set and the logic really fits in with the emotional tie of the situation and just how much it does really help in sort of solving solving the spread of HIV and sort of understanding the sociological mm-hmm. way that it takes place. Now, talking a little bit more about how emotion fits into it, what are your thoughts on problem solving versus the whole idea of overthinking? Um, I, I, I like that question because we are, my co-author Charles Conn and myself, are very much uh, people who love to see, we have a bias for action. Okay. And uh, so we we don't uh, uh, care. At, at times we clearly see overthinking being just another another way of um, risk aversion mm-hmm. um, but there's there's also times when um, there's a need for so-called overthinking mm-hmm. um, and sometimes overthinking is just is used as a put down um, to let's let's do what I've said you should do um, or let's not debate this mm-hmm. um, and, um, and in that case that's unfair um, the example I just gave, of, of Avahan with, uh, uh, with with Ashok Alexander. Mm-hmm. Um, Ashok spent about a year visiting, you know, hundreds of communities uh, before they came up with the plan for how they would deal with HIV. Mm-hmm. He could have been accused of overthinking, um, but that actually turned out to be a good way of getting the results. Mm-hmm. Complex problems um, typically require... Uh, using multiple lenses on them, looking at them this way, looking at them that way. And that often takes time and involves costs. Um, so um, I think you, while I have a bias for action, I, I, I'd say that um, there are cases when overthinking is, you know, um, is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And so is it, prob- is it possible that a good problem solver might also be a heavy overthinker then? 
um, you know, there are uh, if you're on a, if you're on a team mm-hmm. as, as you mostly are, um, and if um, if, every, if every situation you come across um, you're being viewed as overthinking, well, probably you are. Um, I've just tried to give um, a sense that there's two sides to the to the coin. Mm-hmm. Um, problem solvers are, are, are interested in action and, and seeing things, getting things done. And one of the things that runs in the uh, in the way of that is risk aversion. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also the nature of the problems we we, we face now. Um, we really want bold hypotheses. We want um, audacious questions being asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want different lenses to be used on a problem. We want experiments to occur. And um, what's changed is that so many of the environments that you're doing problem solving in have high uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Now, if, 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 if things, if you're very clear about your sales next year um, or what climate change is going to do next year, then you probably don't have to over, there's not much risk of overthinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the way forward is not clear um, because of technology change or disruption in your industry or any number of external shocks, mm-hmm. um, you've usually got to think them through before you take uh, big action. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where in uh, in, our, in our next book we talk a lot about taking small steps, experimenting, finding your way, mm-hmm. um, even when, it's, when the, the road ahead is not very clear. And to what extent can overthinking be negatively impacting your problem-solving skills? Well, uh, as I mentioned, through risk aversion, um, mm-hmm. I see that. Uh, and then, of course, it, it may just be if things um, don't pan out successfully, it's a waste of time and, um, and resources. Because mm-hmm. I, I relate to that question very deeply because I am a deep overthinker. And sometimes it really, with situations that sort of come about in life or in career, in the career method, um, I tend to overthink and that pretty much stops the whole idea of how to solve a problem and how to deal with the situation. What I would encourage you to do is um, use a little technique uh, that when you hear somebody argue the case for something with Mm -hmm. a hypothesis, uh, one of the little tricks of the trade we use is to say, what do you have to believe for that to be true? Where okay. you, you tease out what the assumptions are, the critical assumptions, and if they were all able to tick them off, mm-hmm. you would then move forward. So overthinking doesn't have to happen in a vacuum or it just doesn't, have, doesn't need to be something that you just mull. You continue. I, I, would, I wouldn't recommend that you just keep mulling stuff over. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep running numbers. You've got to keep putting arguments in your head, uh, asking yourself that question what, of what do I have to believe for this to be true? And that's, product, that's productive time. Mm-hmm. No, that, that is a very good question. I kept asking myself that as you were speaking. I'm like, what do I have to believe? Um, do you believe that problem solving should be a skill present on an individual CV or even a resume? Um, I'd like it to be because I have a vested interest in it. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, we have a um, uh, an online course in problem solving with Go One, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And what we've started to notice is that uh, people who complete the course um, are, are showing this certificate on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, we're talking with uh, uh, our publisher in the US and they're talking a lot about micro-credentials, um, that besides courses that people do at university, um, they're also wanting to do problem-solving, mm-hmm. um, Six Sigma, Python, mm-hmm. uh, where they you know, are able to demonstrate that they've done these courses um, extra-curricular, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but they round out the resume, as they, as they say. Mm-hmm. No, because it's very interesting, especially with this sort of topic when it comes to resumes and CVs, because I know a lot of people my ages and I know a lot of my friends who add that into their resume and aren't really sure if what they define problem solving skill set is, is actually something that they are deemed to be adding onto the resume. Um, I don't think there's any harm. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, um, you know, what always happened at McKinsey was that when people were being interviewed, you would test them for their problem solving and mm-hmm. that happens in so much of knowledge work and analytical work uh, today. Mm-hmm. So even though you've got it on your resume, um, you're going to be tested with some real cases mm-hmm. uh, to know, you know, whether you do have an ability to define a problem, break it down and, and um, set priorities. So you'll be, you'll be given one or more cases mm-hmm. that test what you've learned, mm-hmm. which is why um, we see this as being not something that just is a course that starts and finishes. Um, you, you really have the opportunity to do this as a sort of as a, as a lifelong pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, so and you don't really need much. I have a little... Um, Moleskin um, notebook, yeah, and I have a big art pad, and I do my uh, logic trees and problem definitions mm-hmm. and and prioritizations uh, uh, that way, or you know, with a team on a on a whiteboard and the different ventures uh, that I'm involved in. But um, there's an expression that to be really good at something, you need to have done ten thousand hours. You know, whether it's with a, uh, a concert pianist or somebody with the cello. Um, but I think that rule of that uh, it's linked to the psychologist Ericsson. Um, but I think 10,000 hours is probably right to be a great problem solver as well. So it's something that you can learn, that you can pick up. Um, it's not something that that you're always just going to know. And so what ages are the best ways to sort of start learning problem solving or start even defining how you understand it? Well, I think um, what we've been quite taken by in um, at Sydney University with St Andrews College is that the undergraduates are doing um, a problem solving course, but they're, they're choosing um, a societal problem or a business problem relating to a venture mm-hmm. and then they're actually going through the seven steps process um, to put to solve the problem, mm-hmm. and they're in teams of three. Um, so uh, two other people critique your work, and then you critique their work mm-hmm. to end up with a with a, a better solution. So we, we like that um, we like that model of um, you know learning by doing mm-hmm. uh, and having um, you know not just working on Dina's problem or Rob's problem. Uh, mm-hmm. but working on a problem that they're really passionate about and that they would like to um, to see solved. Mm-hmm. The 
The other side of this that we're quite excited about is conversations that we've had with a few people that this might even be extended into high school. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, we, we would love to see that opportunity for, uh, you know, things like environmental problems like water quality in the local river mm-hmm. or one educator, is, he feels that problems like space junk um, that students in high school could do a pretty good job mm-hmm. at defining that problem, breaking it down and coming up with recommendations for how we limit what could be a very significant uh, problem in the future. Mm-hmm. And how can that skill set also set you apart from other people also sent, um, applying for a job, for example, or looking into advance their career a little bit? Yeah, so one of the examples that um, we use in uh, Bulletproof Problem Solving is a, a, a problem that I, I used to apply to when I was heading recruiting at McKinsey. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem was, um, is Sydney Airport running out of capacity? And we would um, offer that problem to potential recruits mm-hmm. and give them five minutes or ten minutes and then they could uh, get up at the whiteboard or just or just talk about how they would how would they define and how would they break apart that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we looked to see whether they had a logical structure. Um, we looked to see how well they presented it and and how complete it was. Um, so um, that process is is something you can apply all the time, and mm-hmm. you know the. The more problems you work on, the more you try uh, putting your own logic tr- trees together on your little moleskin notebook or uh, or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. you know, the better and the more confident you're going to get. Yeah. And I see that talking about moleskin, talking about noting things down and jotting things out. How is that different from, for example, the use of AI and the use of technology that has been advancing in terms of one productivity and also the skill set of problem solving. Um, well, we're quite excited about um, AI and its uh, potential. And uh, in the um, the imperfectionist, we talk about a, a, a couple of examples. One is a, a McKinsey team that were working on trying to develop new products in what are called super hard materials, which is um, more than 40 gigapascals. And this team used a, a, an AI approach where they looked up all of the uh, the patents and citations relating to um, the technology in those areas. But uh, one of the, the expressions I love is that they were able to do 5,000 expert calls in a minute. Um, so extraordinary productivity in sifting through literature, documents, um, you know, that, that just cause you to say um, you can think very differently about both the insight you get and, and then, of course, the, um, the productivity. Mm-hmm. But one of my favourite stories is, is one that uh, comes from the Nature Conservancy where, I, where I'm involved as a trustee. And the Nature Conservancy is concerned about overfishing of the oceans and the loss of species, particularly in Asia-Pacific like tuna. Um, And it's unregulated. And um, what we felt would make a big difference would be if you you could have on the back of a fishing boat um, a camera 
um, and, uh, you know, then able to fit it with AI uh, and then figure out with all of that splash of water and rocking of the boat and so forth, what species were, were being landed um, and in what quantities. And so, like a lot of people, the Nature Conservancy said, well, we're, we're a conservation organisation, we're not a, an IT uh, group. Mm-hmm. Um, so they went the, went the path of saying, could we crowdsource um, a solution? Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they put it up on uh, Kaggle, which is an Australian company that was bought by Google, mm-hmm. and, um, and they, they have prizes and competitions. And they offered a $150,000 prize for the um, algorithm uh, that did the best job um, of identifying the fish species. Mm -hmm. 2,293 teams um, competed for the 150,000. They truly tapped into um, the world's capability Mm -hmm. uh, to to solve that problem and they got down to a um, a final group of five or ten and and now have... um, uh, the AI fitted on a uh, with a with a camera on an Indonesian fishing boat, and they're getting something like ninety to ninety five percent accuracy. Wow! So we we're we're seeing just you know um, w- ways to look at problems very differently. And the mm-hmm. final one, the final example I'll give is a German example where um, in dermatology, where they asked one hundred and fifty seven dermatologists to determine whether or not a melanoma uh, was uh, cancerous or not. Mm-hmm. And um, the AI outperformed uh, all 157 mm-hmm. um, of, the, um, of the surgeons, of the, sorry, the dermatologists. Okay. Um, so we've, we've got this ability to work, uh, you know, t- together with AI mm-hmm. uh, for, uh, I think, we, we could be on the, the cusp of, of a, um, a productivity a set of breakthroughs in the years ahead mm-hmm. when you marry human capability and AI. Mm-hmm. And how how has AI, I mean, a lot of people, there are a lot of debates when it comes to AI, especially when it comes to the um, the lack of a skill set now of problem solving because pretty much technology does it for you and AI can now do it for you. So why would you get a person to do it if you can get an AI to do it? So what are your thoughts on the overuse of technology when it comes to problem solving and productivity? Um, I think it's in in some respects almost like too early to tell. Yeah. Okay. Um, but um, I like these examples that I've, I've given you of uh, the experimentation that mm-hmm. um, is occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, even that last example, we're not going to do away with dermatologists, I don't think. Um, you know, there's there's a very important yeah. personal touch uh, that comes with it. Um, but, you know, I could certainly see next time, you know, I go to a, a dermatologist, if not next time in a year from now, um, you know, where uh, the dermatologist uh, is is linked up to uh, the, the, the data set that AI has trained on mm-hmm. um, and, you know, uh, and I'm in, I become even in even better hands. Yeah, I think... Especially when it comes to my point of view, I know when I'm talking with my granddad, for example, we're talking about the use of technology all the time. And we always have this kind of debate where it comes to people are using it far too much. People are, it's upgrading faster than 
a person's mind can sort of develop and understand it. So how are we ever going to, do you think that we're ever going to be able to balance the use of using our own brains and also relying on technology as well? Um, well, I'm much more con more positive and confident um, mm -hmm. that you are. There'll, there'll be some false starts as there are. There'll be some overstatements of, um, um, of the impact. Um, but I think we're seeing, you know, enough uh, glimmers early on to say, um, you know, we could we could diagnose um, a, a whole lot of illness earlier and, and save lives, and uh, um, we could um, we could make far better use of our data uh, than we than we do today in um, in, in companies. Uh, mm -hmm. So a lot of positive to work with here. Mm -hmm. And. So going back to our use of problem solving and our use of the skill sets, I know that you have some tips and you have some tricks as to how um, how we can refine our own problem solving skills. So can you share with us and with our audience some of the ways that you've learned and you've sort of understood to be the ways to refine our own problem solving? I think the I have to start with, a problem definition and one of my colleagues, Michael Trail, uh, who was the CEO of SVA, um, used the expression um, a lot, what does success, uh, what does good look like mm -hmm. um, or, or what does success look like? So that's another way of saying if we solve the problem, you know, what would the world be like? Mm -hmm. And then testing that with your team and, and with your um, superiors and so on, um, you know, is just is a very very sensible way of feeling mm -hmm. like that you've you, you've got the right um, problem uh, scope. Um, then this notion of um, that I've given several examples of of um, um, you you just can't solve a, a, a problem like um, uh, obesity or loss of market share at at the highest level uh, without breaking that problem down. So, for example, if it's a problem of loss of market share, is it a, is it a problem of price? Is it a problem of product features? Is it a, pro, a, a something to do with our service levels or warranty? So you've, that's an example of breaking a, a problem down. So you've 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 got to get um, experienced and and practiced at how you break a problem into its component parts. Mm -hmm. The the part that I think is often missed that is terribly important is coming up with some priorities because you you, you just can't solve everything, mm -hmm. you know, in six or eight weeks or a, or a month. You've got to make some choices about what you're going to spend your time on. And we use a little a little matrix that shows how big is the impact and how likelihood is it, likely is it, you know, that something can happen. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's a little bit like that Stephen Covey who used to say from Seven Habits for Highly Effective People, first things first. Do the things that are high impact and uh, and have high probability of success. You know, w worry about the low impact and high pro and low probability last. Mm -hmm. um, and then these notions we've talked about before of um, making sure that a work plan, you know, does integrate the work of um, of different people. Getting good at being able to do lots of back of the envelope calculations um, using a few little. Uh, tips like is there an 80-20 going on here, um, you know, can I uh, figure out where the break-even point is, 
there's a whole lot of things you can do that take you a long way to solving a problem without having to do a, a very large Monte Carlo simulation or complex scenario analysis. And you save those tools, we call them the big guns, for, yes. the, for the very, very big problems. And then these final steps of synthesising and recommending action, um, you know, that's where your debating skills and your ability to convince people and, um, you know, show them how exciting a future can be when you take a course of action. Um, you know, practice makes perfect with that. Yes. And, no, I think it's really interesting when you're talking about the different practices because there's so many different ways that, a person can sort of improve their problem solving and sort of understand it a little bit more. But those tips definitely seem like a very, very um, small, definite, a very um, defined way of improving it a whole lot more, which is very interesting to me. Um, now, I would love to hear your own way of problem solving. And in our practice and habits section, we have this question that we ask everyone as what is your practice in order to improve and cultivate your own problem solving, problem solving skills? I have to confess to being old school mm -hmm. um, with, you know, having a, uh, um, a, a pen and a piece of paper. I, I have tried some of the online techniques for drawing trees and mm -hmm. uh, trying to do systems change and causality and so on, but I, I'm just... Um, not very good, not very good at that. So I, I stick to what I know and what I what I'm I'm used to doing. Mm -hmm. um, but I I think at any point in time um, there's probably two or three problems I'm I'm thinking about, mm -hmm. and and then I'm invariably you know putting them um, putting pen to paper and then crossing things out as I learn a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so in many respects. Um, what I didn't say before was that um, this whole idea of running through step by step um, is, um, is is important, but iterating and going back and forth um, is really quite important. So if I learn some new facts, as I was telling you before about bushfires mm -hmm. um, and you know, efforts to quell these megafires, um, those facts then cause me, in some cases, to redefine the problem, mm -hmm. um, and and that happens uh, uh, that happens a lot, and that's a, an extraordinarily enjoyable part of the um, of the problem solving process. Mm -hmm. The other thing I do that um, I joke about with my wife Paula is um, um, we 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 have a team of two. Um, okay. You know, where where I. Um, you know, put my arguments um, and explain my logic on a particular issue to her, mm -hmm. and say, "What do you think?" <laughs> um, and she she she's able to punch great holes in things that uh, don't stand uh, don't stand muster. Mm -hmm. But you know, whether it's your wife, your partner, or a friend, or whatever, um, when I say problem solving is a team sport, you you get enormous value by um, testing these ideas sharing facts with others as part of the process rather than it, it being a, a solo endeavour. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the challenges that sort of take place when you're, when you're discussing it with 
either your your wife or a colleague, what are some of the challenges that you've faced? Well, we um, the the biggest one I think is um, we like to to define a problem and turn that problem into a hypothesis, mm-hmm. and, and that's a. Uh, and that's and that's good. That's an important part of the process because, as part of the scientific method, you then test the hypothesis. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just set out to collect the facts mm-hmm. that fit the argument for the hypothesis. Yeah, and that and that's a human weakness, and uh, I'm guilty of it. Um, you know, as I'm sure um, a lot of other problem solvers are, mm-hmm. um, but. Yeah, you have to you have to guard against that and uh, um, and and try to be um, open minded to the fact that you're going to turn some facts over that are going to really cause you to say I didn't I didn't get that right. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the hypothesis has to change. Mm-hmm. So, when arguing your case a little bit more, when sort of figuring out who's, for lack of a better phrase, right or wrong. Um, how do you sort of settle the debate or the argument as to who should who's the right one in each scenario? Um, I think that can be done in um, in a number of, of different ways, but it's it's quite an you touch on quite an important part of the process where you have that opportunity within the team. To mm-hmm. say, well, how, how do these things sound? Uh, you know, is this robust? Is it going to be true in the next recession as, as strongly as it was in, you know, the last boom, mm-hmm. uh, or whatever those changes in scenarios uh, uh, may be? So, you know, it, it's a um, it, it's a process of, uh, of persuasion, and uh, um, you know, you you hope that everybody's got their um, Heart in the right place to support, you know, the, you know, what the strongest argument is. Mm-hmm. And how do you separate the, I think the emotional aspect of it, either the ego or the vulnerability that could take place when someone argues that your case isn't strong enough or that your reasoning isn't correct. I think the way we've, um, we used to have an expression of. Um, in McKinsey that we support what's right rather than who's right mm-hmm. and and that touches on a little bit earlier what we talked about uh, before the show that um, um, you know sort of looking for the truth um, and and the and the, the facts that are supported by it mm-hmm. um, that's a, a culture you've got to have and yeah. sometimes the expression is um, used play the ball not the man mm-hmm Okay. Uh, which, of course, being an AFL, coming from an AFL background, I, I like a lot. But I found um, at times it surprised me, um, you know, in a in a university setting that, you know, sometimes there were, you know, I would see personal put-downs mm-hmm. um, that had nothing to do with the strength of the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you've got to create a, a team culture, um, you know, where, you know, the, the search is for the truth and what's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and 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 therefore, um, it's not part of the process to be attacking an individual, mm-hmm. you know, on personal grounds. Well, that is 
a very interesting way of looking at it, especially when you said, um, I think you were talking about the man earlier, the the phrase, and I think that is a very interesting phrase because, I'm, I'm sorry, what was the phrase, the phrase that you were saying earlier? Um, not the man. Play the ball, not the man. Play the ball, not the man. Yes. Um, for me, I, my father's side is a very big AFL watcher. He's big, very big sports fan. So I think that really would hit for me as well when it comes to play the ball because it's a situation of you playing the game, not the person that you're playing as well. And I think when it talks about, when you're talking about ego, like we were talking about before, there's a lot of things that you're having to sort of realize when understanding that you're not really playing you're not really going against the person you're going against a, that person's situation or yeah. that person's problem so it's a really difficult thing to sort of separate between you're not against the person you're against either what they're doing or what they understand yeah yeah i mean it's a slight variant on this is um uh, at mckinsey one of the expressions we used to use was that every consultant had an obligation to dissent mm -hmm. an obligation to dissent yeah and that that um, was fantastic for you know having the the junior people on the team feel that they had a voice mm -hmm. and they could contribute. Uh, but it's an unusual expression; you don't see it uh, very often. But it was very much to designed, uh, you know, to to say it's okay to disagree, mm -hmm. uh, and we'll and we'll work it out from there. And why do you think a lot of people are just not wanting to? disagree or not wanting to especially when it comes to a hierarchy the hierarchy and it comes to a workplace environment there are people that just not wanting to be honest and say things and say how they feel about the company well it, it's hard at times to disagree mm -hmm. it, it it's hard for that one person you know on a board of 10 or in a senior management group of 10 um, you know, to have a, a view that's out in left field and everybody else is um, somewhere else. So there's there's a lot of pressures we have to conform and 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 to uh, to agree. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you get into those situations, um, all you can do um, is do your best to point out the cost of being wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and if the cost of being wrong, you know, that is that, um, you know, you go down a path, uh, you know, that has financial implications that could be disastrous. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you've convinced yourself, um, you know, that that is the case and that there's a reasonable prospect of that happening, um, then you've got to be guided by your problem solving um, to dissent, um, you know, and to carry that view as forcefully as you can. Mm -hmm. And and, and I. I think we've uh, um, we've, all, we've all had that experience in our lives, and we're, and we're and we're better off rather than just feeling, oh, I just go along with it, um, or uh, you know, I just, I just keep quiet on this one. Mm -hmm. um, you may you may do that in nine out of ten situations, um, but there's going to be the ones where you where you know if you've thought hard about it and and thought through the consequences, and if they are as as um, significant as you as you think they are, um, you know, then you owe it to yourself to uh, um, to argue that case strongly.
Mm-hmm. And this ties in really well with some of our audience questions that have been sent over to us. There are quite a few. Um, some of them have been spoken about throughout the show, but there are some that I think are really interesting and definitely I think could use your opinion. <laughs> so the first one is, how can problem-solving skills be applied to complex and even ambiguous situations in order to achieve a goal? Um, I've given a couple of examples. Uh, the first thing I'd say is um, you know, neither my uh, co-author nor, my, nor myself are, uh, are experts with, with social problems, but we, we wrote a book in, in, the, in Bulletproof Problem Solving, we wrote a chapter on wicked problems, mm-hmm. and that's when we, we took the example of obesity um, as an illustration and the HIV example. So we, we feel that we've um, been able to uh, demonstrate or, or to show mm-hmm. that problem solving can throw light um, on even the most complex and or wicked um, uh, wicked problems mm-hmm. but there's there's a whole lot of um, you know issues in the world um, like climate we we would uh, we would feel that certainly lends itself to problem solving capability and we're seeing some excellent problem solving uh, capability on that side um, but you know when it comes to issues of inequality and uh, uh, justice and and so on um, we don't lay any particular claims, um, you know, that, that we can add great value there because um, they relate so much to values um, and uh, uh, different judgments, uh, you know, that are somewhat separate from the, the process that we feel comfortable okay. uh, working with. Okay, perfect. Now, how can our thinking be leveraged to promote better problem solving and productivity? I think my answer is uh, a a fairly humble one in that um, I think over a generation, if if we had, uh, if problem solving was part of a school curriculum and a university slash college uh, curriculum, Mm -hmm. I think we'd have better levels of debate um, on a lot of issues. And I think um, companies would perform uh, would perform better, um, but we're trying to solve this somewhat differently. We're trying to solve it, um, you know, one person at a time, mm-hmm. and and to have these conversations with students that we talk to, uh, with colleges that are adopting our, our curriculum. I got a, a lovely uh, note today from a young guy who'd been at McKinsey who got a startup in AI mm-hmm. and he said how much um, he was influenced by reading Bulletproof Problem Solving. Oh, wow. Um, so that's why I, I, I feel it's, um, you know, one one life at a time and, and every time um, I gave a, um, a, a workshop in um, in Melbourne a couple of years ago uh, with a group of not-for-profit leaders, mm-hmm. and a woman wrote to me um, afterwards and, and talked about how, how she had um, a situation with um, a disabled son and his living arrangements, mm-hmm. and she worked through um, bulletproof problem solving, and found a solution uh, that was a, gr- a great solution for her and her son, mm-hmm. and thanked me for it. Uh, now I can only thank her. 
but it was just so wonderful to hear, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that um, even in, in a situation like that where what looked like a, a problem without a solution uh, turned out to be one that this lady was able to solve, um, you know, with the support of our framework. Mm, wow. That is, it's amazing just how much the steps that included in the book and the theories and the understanding that is defined in your book as well can be used and implemented so well into a very specific situation and just taken into into a context that can be used to really help a situation. Yeah. The last one is, how can I improve my focus so I can increase my productivity and also solve problems more efficiently while also maintaining a high quality result. Um, that's that's a big uh, a big order. Yes. Um, <laughs> and 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 my suggestions um, are, are not grand, uh, but I do think taking your two or three biggest issues that you've got. Mm-hmm. And then just start with start with the first of them, mm-hmm. um, and start putting together um, a good definition of the problem and doing the breakdown of it and prioritizing, mm-hmm. um, and then feeling confident uh, that you've done some analysis and brought some insight with some new facts or some experiments that you might try mm-hmm. uh, that take you that step further. Uh, so it's not going to happen all in one go. Uh, but over a period of time and once you've tackled the first one and then the, the, the next two or three and then the next, uh, you know, 20 over the next decade, mm-hmm. um, you're going to feel very confident uh, about your ability, um, you know, to solve issues that, that, that come your way. Mm, yeah, I definitely, when I saw that question, I definitely thought that could use a breakdown as to what was the most important aspects that you were wanting to talk about because there is a lot and I think that's, pretty much the question of our entire life as a whole as to how can I improve while also maintaining a high result in everything in every aspect of life it is definitely not the easiest kind easiest kind of um question that we have (laughs) on the show can Um, I I just say the um what I hadn't mentioned before is that um what we've been surprised about recently is that the World Economic Forum lists the most important skills that companies are looking for. Mm-hmm. And the number one skill for a number of years now has been complex problem solving. Mm-hmm. So we've got a situation where employers, and we would say business and government alike, are saying they value problem solving. That They want to see more prob- people with problem solving skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so the... the um, the people who are asking you these questions, they're, they're running with the tide um, that problem solving is being viewed as important and therefore it's, it's an, uh, it becomes important uh, to be as good a problem solver as you can be. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's really interesting in the aspect of business and aspect of also trying to find employees into a company and I think especially when determining the um, the amount of problem-solving skills that each of the employers have, uh, especially when it comes to the higher management, if they don't have that skill set, it greatly sort of impacts the lower 
lower workers and everyone who's working in a sort of a hierarchy. Mm. Now, I would love to give you the open mic. Now, this is a section that our audience knows really well, where it gives the guests a chance to talk about anything that you are passionate about or something that you're working on recently. So in the last few minutes, I'd love to give you the floor. And yes, please share with our audience what we'd like to. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is something that I've been involved in for a couple of decades now. Mm -hmm. And that's my work as a trustee of the Nature Conservancy, which is a global organisation that protects the lands and waters on which all life uh, depends. Mm -hmm. And I was attracted to um, the Nature Conservancy uh, because they were science-based and uh, collaborative um, and uh, very much... They were, they were born when they were um, a group of ecologists that was going to have a, a forest cut down. Mm -hmm. uh, so their response was, let's get the money and buy the forest. Um, okay. So they, they used a market mechanism um, to uh, ad address the problem and that forest still continues to this day in, uh, um, in New York. Um, fast forward to today and, um, and a group of us um, have just protected 44,000 hectares of rainforest in Borneo in mm -hmm. Kalimantan, uh, which is an extraordinary carbon store um, and biodiversity with the orangutan. Um, and we've uh, done a, a set of arrangements with local villagers who are able to continue their livelihoods with low-impact logging, um, but, but to preserve this, um, this rainforest. So um, this whole notion of the Nature Conservancy being problem solvers for the environment um, is one of these things that um, it's a passion. Um, but every day uh, with what we do to uh, achieve the 2030 goals uh, for Australia with climate and biodiversity, um, you know, we have new challenges to, to figure out using our best problem solving skills, how we do it and how we go about it. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I guess what I wanted just to convey with that personal story is, um, you know, these um, you, you you can get better at business problems and using AI and market share and, and new products and so on, um, but uh, you can get enormous pleasure uh, and satisfaction in being able to uh, solve some of the biggest problems we have in the world um, as a problem solver. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's amazing. And especially with the work of saving a lot of the parts of the rainforest that if not for that conservancy, then definitely our the next generation or the generation after us wouldn't get to enjoy, wouldn't get to participate in saving. So that is remarkable work on, on your part. And I'm I hope that our generation is just as just uses our importance as just as much as you have so far. And it's it's amazing to see that um, the generation before us is just able to think ahead a lot more than our generation is currently. So, yes, I definitely hope that there is a whole lot of the rainforest that we're still able to see for years to come. I do too. Thank you, Dina. Yeah, thank you so much, Robert, for joining me and for being a part of the show. And 
helping me actually define what um, problem solving is. And I think you have probably probably actually defined it for me. So I'm really glad to hear that. Um, if there is a way that audience member would like to get in touch with you, is there a particular method that you would prefer? Uh, you can find me through LinkedIn. Okay, perfect. I will have the LinkedIn link down below in order for easy access for our audience members. Um, yeah, so thank you, Robert, so much for joining me once again. Um, yeah, if you guys want to see the next episode, um, it will either be me or a new host coming onto the show. So yes, thank you guys so much for joining me and I'll see you guys in the next episode. You have been listening to Work in Progress, the personal productivity science insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps others find us and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at pp.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Tia Hama. Thanks for tuning in.